Our scripture lesson from the New Testament revolves around three separate passages in the Gospel according to John, each of these having to do with events in the life of the Apostle Andrew. We shall read first from the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, verses 35 through 44, and then in chapter 6 and in chapter 12. Let us now give attention to God's word. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. <clears throat> the first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then turning to chapter 6, reading there verses 5 through 11. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a multitude was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, How are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about five thousand. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And then turning to chapter 12, reading verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, 
and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here ends our reading from the Gospel according to John. You know, every time John tells us about Andrew, he feels compelled to identify him by coupling him with his distinguished brother, who was Simon Peter. Everyone knew who Peter was, you couldn't help but know it. Someone has said about people from Texas that you can always tell a Texan, but you can't tell him much. <laughs> well, you could always tell when Peter was around because he was one of those forceful people who always made his presence known in a, in a ready way. He was never at a loss for words. They might be wrong, but he was always doing something. It might be chopping off an ear. It might, it might be saying a word for which Jesus would bless him. It might be saying a word for which Jesus would rebuke him. But Peter was always going to have something to say. You could be sure of that. And uh, so everyone knew who he was. He was the center of attention immediately when he walked into a room. And so when John the Apostle, years and years later, starts to write down an account of the life of the Lord Jesus, he begins by telling how he, that is the Apostle John, and Andrew had met Jesus. Evidently, they were disciples of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one who was the forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist had that tremendous task of moving things out of the way to make way for the Messiah to come. I've often told our people that uh, when you build a big interstate highway like Interstate 40, uh, things have to be moved around. Blasting takes place, excavation takes place, houses are ripped up and torn down and mountains are shredded. A new highway is passing through. Well, the Old Testament had predicted that the highway maker was to come and he was to build a highway by which God's own anointed one would bring his message straight from God. And the highway builder was John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a prophet and it was his job to come and to denounce things that he saw were evil and wrong. Like Amos, the Old Testament prophet, who was a countryman who came into the court in the palace of the king and announced to the king that God had dropped a plumb line, that is, a, a cord with a piece of leaded weight at the end of it alongside the wall. And he could measure the wall and see whether the wall was out of kelter, bent, or crooked. And so said Amos in the Old Testament, God is dropping a plumb line and he's measuring the wall. Now what usually happens is that it's a lot easier to kill the prophet than it is to tear down the wall and make another wall. And so that's what happened to John the Baptist. He came preparing the way of his Lord. And this, what's his name? This Andrew, who always has to be identified by saying that he is Simon Peter's brother, he was one of those who had a mystical bent. He wanted to know all that he could know about God. He wanted to know all about God's plan for man and all about salvation. And so he made it his business to go all the way from Bethsaida, clear beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist was preaching. And he heard that fierce ascetic man from the desert country pronouncing doom upon a church which had hardened itself against God's way. And John the Baptist preached 
and he rooted up and destroyed and tore down. There were many people who would come shaking and trembling and seeking the waters of baptism and repentance and a new life. And John the Baptist was the one who was baptizing them. And so Andrew became one of John the Baptist's disciples. And as Donald Munson has read for you a moment ago, on one occasion John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him at the Jordan River. And Jesus seeks to be identified with what God is now doing, this new thing that God does. This ushering in of a new covenant and a new relationship. And Jesus asked John to baptize him. And John says, I'm not worthy even to stoop down and to unfasten the strings that hold your sandals to your feet. And Jesus said, let it be so for now, for I must fulfill all, all that is required. And so John, with a trembling hand, baptizes Jesus that day in the Jordan River. And John had pointed out Jesus John the Baptist had pointed out Jesus to these disciples, one of whom is Andrew. And he said of him, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And Andrew and this unnamed disciple who was probably John the Apostle followed Jesus away that day. And they said to him, Rabbi, where do you dwell? Where do you live? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, come and see. Come and see. If you want to know more about him and you ask him the question, Rabbi, where do you dwell? Jesus will always say, come and see. Come and see. And so Andrew, Andrew went that day and we're not told what took place. But Andrew, first of all, brought himself to Jesus. There are four points that I want, to re want you to remember about Andrew. One is that first of all he brings himself to Jesus. He recognizes him as the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world and he accepts him as God's anointed one, the Messiah, and he gives himself to the Lordship of Jesus and he becomes a disciple, a learner. Later he will become an apostle, one who is sent. This Andrew, he brought himself first to Jesus. Every single one of us should ask ourselves this question. Have I really sought to know Jesus, who he is? And is he just a figure in a stained glass window or someone I read about in the Bible? Or does he have an active participating lordship over my life? I talked to a psychiatrist in Miami about a young man who made uh, quite a, a, a statement about his Christian faith to the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist says this young man speaks Christianese, he talks a lot of the Christian language, he, he makes all the right sound. But he said, I don't think that the Christian faith really is down in his heart and makes any difference in the way in which he makes value judgments and determines the course of his life. I think it's mostly talk. Now do we know Jesus? If we don't, our first business should be to know him. An old Baptist preacher speaking about uh, 
Andrew is the patron of all personal workers who win others to Jesus, said to a group of people who were going out to witness for Jesus, he said, you can't give what you ain't got any more than you can go back where you ain't been. <laughs> and it's true. You can't give what you haven't got any more than you can go back where you haven't been. And so have you had a personal experience of the Lordship of Jesus in your life? And if you have, then secondly, Andrew makes it his business to first go and find his own brother and bring him to Jesus. It's a lot easier to witness to other people than it is to witness at home. Jesus, uh, Andrews was the first home missionary and he was the first foreign missionary. A little later on we're going to read about him dealing with some foreigners. But first of all, he remembered that he had a brother named Simon Peter. And I expect that after Andrew came into a knowledge of Jesus and had heard the voice of Jesus and his soul was satisfied that this was God's Messiah. Then he made it straight for home and he wanted to share with this big bluff brother of his, this scintillating, startling personality Peter. He wanted to tell Simon, we have found the Messiah. Come and meet him. Come and see him. I want you to know him. I think Andrew must have thought, oh my goodness, if, if Simon gets converted, if Peter gets converted, it'll make headlines in hell <laughs> because he will make the devil tremble. I have been myself to St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome and if you ever have the privilege of going to Rome, you've got to go there. That is unquestionably the most notable place of worship on all the planet Earth. And if you go into St. Peter's Basilica and you look way up to the top of the dome and you think of the architect Michelangelo and you think of the, the painters Raphael and you think of all of the genius and the centuries that went into the building of it and if you go to that magnificent statue of Peter and you see his statue there and you look at the toe of that statue and see that it has been worn off by pilgrims from every corner of the earth who have come and knelt and kissed the foot of Simon Peter, making prayers to God, asking him to forgive them of their sins, speaking to this one for whom they believe the keys of the kingdom of heaven are there, and making prayers unto him. And around the basilica you can see inscribed the words, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And someone ought to go and write underneath those words. There never would have been such words as, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, had there not been one by the name of Andrew, who went and got his brother, Peter, and brought him to Jesus. But, oh, what's his name? Andrew. He, he is self-effacing. He goes and brings his brother to Jesus. Common as the wayside grasses, ordinary as the soil, by the score he daily passes, going to and fro from his toil. Stranger he to wealth or fame, he is only what's his name. 
Not for him the glittering glory, not for him the place is high. Week by week the same old story, try and fail and fail and try. All his days seem dull and tame, poor old plodding, what's his name? Though to someone else the glory, though but few his worth may know, on his shoulders rests the story of our progress, one so slow. Read the road by which we came with the blood of what's-his-name. This week, one of my friends and one of the friends of many of you, Melvin Graham, Dr. Billy Graham's brother, became ill down in Charlotte. And uh, many of us prayed uh, for Melvin. And uh, I have often been with him and love him very much. He is a dairy farmer uh, down in Charlotte, uh, is quite a landowner now. And uh, Melvin <laughs> is a very interesting person. Uh, you can always go someplace with Melvin, and uh, Melvin's hairline has receded a good bit, and uh, he doesn't look like Billy Graham. And uh, you can introduce someone and say, this is Melvin Graham. And uh, they just keep right on with their mind a million miles away. And then you say, this is Melvin Graham, Billy Graham's brother. And then they turn and they say, oh, so this is Melvin Graham, Billy Graham's brother. You know, and they hug him up close. Hey, I've always wanted to meet you. <laughs> and that's the way it goes. Oh, what's his name? Well, Melvin is a witness for Jesus, a wonderful witness for Jesus. And uh, this is the way it is with Andrew. He witnesses, and he witnesses in such a way that he brings his own brother to Christ. The light that shines the brightest, shines, uh, shines brightest at home. And we ought to be sure that our own children know Jesus Christ and that they see him in our lives, and that our wives or our husbands know Jesus Christ, that our brothers and our sisters know him. We ought to be witnessing uh, for him, to them, by words of, of love and uh, kindness, by saying I'm sorry when we ought to say I'm sorry, and by showing that Jesus really is in control of our lives. Uh, we've, we need so much to do this and not to fake it. I have a friend who has two little boys and a uh, preacher, and uh, there was a fire in their neighborhood and these kids went running to the fire. And uh, when they got back that night and they were having the, the, the prayers, the little boys uh, thought about works of love and kindness for a minute. So they said, uh, Dear Lord, please bless these poor people whose house burned down and help them to get a new house. And the other little boy said, And thank you, Lord, for letting us get there before they put it down. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you have to, to, to know the foibles of, uh, of people to appreciate this. This is the way we are, and this is the way Peter would have been. And Jesus took him and made him such a stalwart leader that all the world loves the name of Simon Peter, but we would not have known him had it not been for Andrew who brought his brother to Jesus. And then quickly I have to tell you about how Andrew... One day when a great crowd of people had gathered to hear Jesus teach and preach, thousands of people had gathered, over 5,000 men alone, not counting the women and the children. And uh, it was getting toward evening. And uh, Mark, in recounting it, says that 
The people on the hillside looked like garden plots. They were all there on the green grass with their brightly colored oriental robes and, and Mark saw these patches of people and Jesus must have had a tremendous physique and voice to have uh, shouted out the gospel in his parables and his teaching to these people. And he did. And then Jesus turned and, and he said uh, to one of his followers, one of his disciples, one of his apostles, Philip, he said, we must give these people something to eat. And uh, Philip was a good Presbyterian elder and he got to thinking and he said, 200 denarii, 200 penny worth. To, uh, even that was uh, 200 pennies, where a penny would be about a day's wages. He said, why even 200 days wages wouldn't be enough money uh, to, to buy bread to, to give just a little to all of them. They were at a deacon's meeting. And uh, so you know what uh, Jesus uh, hears next. Next there is the voice of old Andrew. You see old what's his name? Andrew had slipped out there in the crowd and he made friends with a little boy. A little boy who had two sardines and five biscuits, two little loaves, two little fishes and five loaves. And it would have been just like uh, uh, Andrew to have gotten to know this little boy and they started talking to each other. And finally the little boy said, listen, after a while we're going to eat and my mama fixed this little lunch for me and I'll be glad to share it with you. And so when Jesus asked, uh, how are we going to feed these people? Only Andrew would be simple enough to think that Jesus might be able to do something with, with these two little fishes and uh, these five loaves. And so he mentions them. It almost seems ridiculous, doesn't it? And yet, think about what happened. There is a lad here. There are little children here this morning. I cannot help but think about a snowy day the first Sunday in January. I believe the year was 1857. When a man by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was only 16 years of age, went into a, a, a free a Methodist church or, or some little nonconformist chapel in Cannon Street in, in London, in England, and it had snowed so hard that the preacher could not get there, and there were only seven or eight people in the church and they looked at each other and they wondered what to do and time for church to came, came and, and then there was a little whispering and, and so they decided they'd sing a hymn and take up the offering and, and then one of the men decided he'd try to preach and, and Spurgeon said later that he never knew the man's name, that he thought he was a tailor or tinker, something of that nature, but he got up and he quoted some verses from Isaiah, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And Spurgeon that day answered the call of God and gave his life to the Lordship of Jesus and the whole wide world still quotes Spurgeon, the greatest preacher evangelist probably the English-speaking world has ever known. In London, thousands upon thousands would line up to see that incredible preacher preach the gospel of Jesus Christ little 16-year-old boy there. But what does he know? What's ever going to become of him? Or you think about that time when Edward Kimball, that Sunday school teacher from the Mount Vernon Church in Boston, 
nervously walk back and forth in front of a shoe store, trying to get up enough nerve to go in and talk to a, another 16-year-old boy who had been attending his Sunday school class. He was in the back of the store wrapping up some shoes with paper. That young boy had it as, go as his goal in life to make $100,000. He had been poor and he was tired of being poor and he wanted to make money. And so he was working in the shoe store. And Edward Kimball, the Sunday school teacher, came in. And he spoke to that boy. And back there in the back of the shoe store, that boy gave his heart to Jesus Christ as his Savior. And when the deacons in the Mount Vernon Church met, they talked about whether or not he knew enough to really be a member of the church. They examined him. They asked him what he believed. His grammar was atrocious. They talked with him for a while. Then finally they had the vote, and they voted him into the membership of the Mount Vernon Church. And it's a good thing they did, for his name was Dwight Lyman Moody. And D.L. Moody became the greatest evangelist of the last century. He put one hand on America and one hand on Britain, and drew both of these great uh, nations uh, closer to Jesus Christ. A marvelous, marvelous instrument of God. There's a lad here. He's got five little loaves and two fishes, but what are they among so many? Only Andrew would bring forward something like that. But that's what he did, and God blessed. And as a result of it, the world, the world still gets touched by people who are willing to bring who they can to Jesus. And then the fourth time that we see Andrew is when he is approached by Philip, who must have been one of his buddies, and Philip tells him that there are some Greeks who have come to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. They are Greeks hated Gentiles, a pious Jew always referred to a Gentile as a Gentile dog. He was an outcast. And Andrew must have been a person of extraordinarily large sympathies. He was no racialist at all. He was a person who knew that God was willing to accept those who would come to him through the door that he had provided, and that door is Jesus. And Philip came and said, there's some Greeks here, and they want to know if they can see Jesus. And Andrew, it says, took them to Jesus. Andrew took them to Jesus. Andrew knew his master well enough to know that he wanted to meet these Greeks too. And that's when Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Greeks, Romans, blacks, white, yellow, whatever their race may be, if they look toward that cross of Jesus Christ, they could know salvation in him. Andrew has the distinction of being the patron saint of three different countries. He is the patron saint of Russia, he is the patron saint of Greece, and he is the patron saint of Scotland. Those of us who have had the privilege of being in Scotland, and especially at St. Andrews University, know that the whole town there is named for St. Andrews, St. Andrew, because 
it is believed that Regulus, one of the missionaries to come first to that part of Britain to bring the gospel, brought some relics of St. Andrew uh, to that place on the coast and founded a church. And uh, that X-shaped cross is St. Andrew's cross. He was put to death somewhere in Greece. He was tied, not nailed, to boards in an X-shape and left to die of exposure. And there's a beautiful prayer which he gave for those who had put him to death. St. Andrew, and leading Greeks and leading men everywhere to Christ, showed the heroism of self-defacement. I had our coach, Jim Seaton, gave me a copy of a book to read by John Wooden, the distinguished basketball coach at UCLA. And you know UCLA can play basketball. Coach Wooden says some very wonderful things. Now I wanted to share with you some words which I saw the other day, which I especially like from him. He says approval is a great motivator. I try to follow any criticism of a player whenever possible with a pat on the back, realizing that I cannot antagonize and influence at the same time. We attempt always to give public credit and acclaim to our playmakers, our defensive men, and those whose role doesn't leap out of the statistical chart. Playing basketball for UCLA is a privilege and not a right. Every player should work harmoniously with his teammates for the common good of all. At the same time, it should be recognized that basketball is not the ultimate. It is of small importance in comparison to the total life we live. There is only one kind of a life that truly wins, and that is the one that places faith in the hands of the Savior. Get that from a basketball coach at UCLA? Would to God we could get it from Presbyterian preachers. Until that is done, we are on an aimless course that runs in circles and goes nowhere. Material possessions, winning scores, great reputations, all of these are meaningless in the eyes of the Lord because he knows what we really are. And in the end, that's all that matters. And then he concludes, you know, they have a hall of fame in basketball and baseball. Bobby Richardson, one of our friends, is up for the hall of fame in baseball. Raymond Berry made the hall of fame in football. But listen to these words from some unknown writer of verse, just doggerel poetry, but it conveys a great truth, so in keeping with our lesson today. To have your name inscribed up there is greater yet by far than all the halls of fame down here and every man-made star. This crowd on earth, they soon forget the heroes of the past. They cheer like mad until you fall. And that's how long you last. I tell you, friend, I would not trade my name, however small, if written there beyond the stars, 
in that heavenly hall for any famous name on earth or glory that they share. I'd rather be an unknown here and have my name up there. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Last year I told you, I want to repeat it, about going down to Miami at Key Biscayne Presbyterian Church or something else. They had Lane Adams and Ben Hayden. After, ben, after Lane left, they never thought they'd get another preacher to be any good, and then they got Ben Hayden. <laughs> when Ben left, they didn't think they'd ever get anyone who'd be any good, and they got, Steve, they got John Huffman. John Huffman left, and they didn't think they'd ever be able to get a great preacher, and they got Steve Brown. And last winter when I was down there, I went to hear Steve preach. And what a preacher. He closed his sermon one day by telling us an interesting story. He said a man died and uh, a man dreamed that he had died and that he had gone to heaven. And that after he had worshipped for a long, long while and he had enjoyed the glories of his heavenly father that one day in the company of Jesus he said to Jesus these words. He said, I, I want to ask you, Lord Jesus, who is the greatest Christian who ever lived on earth? He said there was a long silence and he waited. He wondered whether Jesus would say Paul or whether he would say Peter or whether he would say Savonarola or whether he would say Wesley or Moody or Billy Graham or some celebrity. And he said Jesus looked at him and smiled. He said, I could tell you, but you wouldn't even know his name. <laughs> God's ways are not like man's ways. And the coach picked up on that when he gave us this here. Andrew is saying, what's his name? They had to identify him so you'd know that he was Simon Peter's brother. The important thing is that we be faithful. Number one, to bring ourselves to Jesus. Number two, to be a home missionary so that those at home know that we belong to Jesus. Number three, to reach out to those who are not likely looking prospects like little children might be in some people's eyes and bring them to Jesus. Your Sunday school class is very important. Number four, that there's no barrier of race, that anyone is eligible to come through the door of Jesus to God the Father and salvation. Let us stand and pray. Our Father, at this time of the year when a great segment of the church in the world recognizes St. Andrew's Day and thinks also of the second coming of the Lord Jesus, we pray that you will help us so to live that when he does come again, that we might be able to hear his voice saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Help us to get away from selfish glory-seeking. Help us not to be resentful when other people are put forward. Help us never to be jealous.
but help us to have one desire that others may know Jesus and that they may know him because we have given ourselves to him and because we have shown his love in our home and because we have reached out to every person we can regardless of their status or race to show them however we can his love. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with each one of you now and forever. Amen.